And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. All right, we should probably get into some comic talk because uh, yeah, you're going to have to go to bed sooner or later. Yeah, about three minutes ago. Three minutes ago, yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> so, did you get a chance yeah. to look at mine? I was actually, I was reading it. I had just downloaded it and was reading it when you called. So, I have to actually not do that. I do that on the show. We had uh, the Long Island year- voice, you mean? No, that's not the Long Island voice. That's just the, I think that's the Brooklyn voice. So, I really can't do it with you there. Uh, <laughs> no, we had, uh, early in my career, we had a guy buy the stations out and he, there was a one hour talk show on one of our stations and they made, they paired me up as the producer with Jim Brown's daughter, Shelly. Not many people know this. Every, everything in the world happens here, by the way, in my little, my little area of Southeast Georgia, Jim Brown, Jim Brown is from here. Okay. And, uh, and his daughter, you know Jim Brown. I know who Jim Brown is. I, yeah. don't, I don't didn't know anything about Shelly, though. Yeah. Well, Shelly took over the show, and she, wow, she was a nut. But she would always, when she'd take a call, she'd always go, we'll take a koala. Good morning, koala. So that was. <laughs> and that's a, that's a Georgia that. accent. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good morning, koala. So I, I kind of learned it. There was. One day she explained football to me on the air. It was very embarrassing. See, you've got the object of the game is you're supposed to get a brown ball between two white legs. And I don't want to hear this. I'm like, actually, you know, if you have to kick it between the legs, you're failing because you were trying to get it in the end zone. No, no, no. And and they're yellow in the NFL, you know. It's, no, no, this, they're white, and the ball is brown. It's very racial and sexual. Like, okay, all right. It's sexual? This is a, yeah, this is a station that marketed to, like, 64-year-olds. <laughs> Needless to say, she didn't last but about two months. And that's, with, this, that's with a famous in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But to this day, every so often on the show, I'll go, I will take a caller. Good morning, Koala. So. Absolutely nobody knows what I'm doing, but that's probably uh, for the best. But, but I'll tell you, as, as an authentic Brooklyn guy, mm-hmm. I don't hear that voice and think Brooklyn. <laughs> what is it, then? That's, if anything, well, I mean, I, obviously it's some sort of bastardization of things because she's from Georgia, but ah. uh, I, would, I would think Long Island. You would think Long Island, okay. Well, see, Maurice was my buddy in college who was from Long Island. He was... He was from Long Island, and then he moved to North Lauderdale. Okay. You know where in Long Island? I don't. I know his dad was a dentist, and a, and their name was Casamajor. They were Haitian. Okay. And well, we only Haitian have descent. one dentist on the island, so. Yeah. <laughs> this was also 20 years ago, so 25 years ago. Back to the bin. Hey everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I am Paul Spataro, and I am joined today by my buddy Scott. No, not Scott Gardner. 
No, not Scott McGregor. Not even Scotty Gardner. No, today we have Beta Scott, Scott Rifen. <laughs> I know, didn't did, realize. Did you know that that's your designation at this point? No, I did not know that. Yes, yeah, Scott Gardner is, is Scott Prime. Mm-hmm. And uh, Scott McGregor is Scott 2.0. So you became Beta Scott. I didn't realize I was fourth on the depth chart, tell you the truth. <laughs> well, I, I have yet to record anything with Scotty Gardner, so okay. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure where, how the depth chart plays out. Okay, well, but, hopefully but I can I, play my window a game at some point. But I, but I did think that uh, mentioning as many Scots, as many two true freak Scots as I could before I got to you was a plus. <laughs> how you doing today? Thanks. Good, good. I, I want to go ahead and preface this by saying I will not be doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression today, so... All right, so I got to get it out of the way quick and just give yeah. it a quick, quick, la, la. All right, and now we can get on to other things. Without Bill here, it's not worth doing anything more than No, exactly. I just, when I hear him doing it, I'm going, Why, what's the point of even trying? <laughs> yeah. I tell you, you know, if, if you've listened to the last couple that have been on, uh, if nothing else, you know, Bill cracks me up. <laughs> oh, yeah, it cracks me up. I'm, I'm usually mowing the lawn when I hear you guys, so. Yeah, I do that, too. I put on the head, the, uh, the. Noise-proof headphones over ne- over my earbuds. <laughs> I'm over the lawn, so I can you know, so I can actually hear the podcast while I'm uh, yeah. going. Uh, you know, anybody who's listening to this who is not familiar with Scott, shame on you. But uh, you must must listen to Dinner for Gre- for Geeks because it is just it's it's just a great show. I I enjoy the heck out of it. I try to save that for when I have a long car ride, though. I find why is, that's, why is that's that? Listen to it, because I feel it's the same thing as almost the road shows on Two True Freaks. It, I, I almost feel like I'm sitting at the table with you guys. By the and, way, next week we are going to take your advice just that you just gave me just now. We're going to have like heroes and lamb, and we're going to have dinner for Greeks. So yeah, okay, yeah, that was my my little uh, faux pas. There is is gonna <laughs> that's good. Have a gyro on me. Yeah, now, but, we, yeah, we have a lot of fun doing that thing, um, and it's and it's almost easy at least we try to make it sound easy so well one of the best things is when you come up with a topic and i start talking to the to the car yes. to say no it's such and such and then <laughs> seconds later one of you will say no it's such and such and i think okay you heard me yeah the yeah. one in particular i could think of was when you guys were talking about freaky cereal uh-huh and i was sitting there in the car and i'm driving along and i started in my head singing the freaky song and then I guess you do the editing. Yeah. And and you found the song and had it in there in, in one of the breaks, which just yep. that made my day. <laughs> and you know what? That is still the only time I've ever heard of Freaky Serial. Oh, I remember it from when it was out. But ah. the, then again, I'm older than everybody. <laughs> I'm not commenting on that. Because <laughs> if you can't say something nice, you don't say that's anything right. at all. That's, that was, that's what we're all taught. I'm a Southern Georgia gentleman. We don't do that. Right. Well, we won't we won't discuss baseball because uh, that's where we uh, might, we might part ways. Uh, you know, I could uh, honestly, I I can kind of take or leave baseball. I'm I'm more football centric, so I have no problem with the Falcons. Although we, you know, I will say this: How about Adam Wainwright? He, he's awesome. He's from here. Is he from there? Oh. Yeah, he's one of the high school kids from here. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. He's an awesome player. I mean, that's yeah, that much is for sure. But you also. Uh, you also spawned John Rocker, so you can't take too much pride. <laughs> well, no, we didn't spawn John Rocker. He's, he's from, a, isn't he an, an Atlanta guy? He's yeah, Atlanta. But you got to understand, I'm five hours away from Atlanta. We're in the armpit of Georgia. Okay, I so we're unaware. nowhere. 
we're on the coast. We've got beaches and islands and, you know, we don't have cities and gridlock. And that's the armpit? Well, no. It, the Atlantans, I think, often think of it as that. From, for, a, for a tax allocation purposes standpoint, yes, it's the armpit. Okay. We're the last ones to get thought of when they're walking around writing checks to people. So Okay. I got but, you there. But we get cool stuff. I mean, you know, this is, I was telling you before we started, this is kind of the center of the universe down here. Uh, you know, we have the G8 Summit here. I mean, who does that, right? Mm. Uh, we, we've had, uh, you know, like I said, Adam Wainwright is from here. And uh, Kwame Brown, the first high schooler taken first overall in the NBA draft. Right. He's from here, same high school as Adam Wainwright. Uh, the guy that wrote uh, Primal Fear, remember that movie? I'm trying to remember. Is that the, is that the one with uh, Richard Gere and Edward Norton? Yeah, Norton. Yeah, Norton. And, uh, that was a great movie. Okay. Yeah, that that's guy that's is... one of it's maybe the only movie that I could use the words "great movie" and Richard Gere in the same sentence. <laughs> At least nothing hamster centric there. But <laughs> uh, yeah, he the guy used to live here that wrote that. Okay. So I mean, it's just yeah. I mean, we just all these weird things happen here that nobody understands or, or realizes. So. So you, you you have quiet pride. Yes, it's a very quiet place, but yet we've got like I think it's seven PGA golfers that live here now. Well, that's that's one advantage <laughs> of living in a place where it's pretty warm all year round. As far as sports yeah. go, it's got to give you a huge advantage because your young people get to play sports all year round. Whereas mm-hmm. up here, when it gets colder in the winter, nobody's playing baseball to speak of. So if That's, you have somebody who's a particularly talented baseball player, they're still shutting it down in the winter. That's funny you say that because that's my one of my recollections of being in New York this summer was when we left on the plane. As it's taking off, all all I, you can make out at a certain level is baseball diamond after baseball diamond after baseball diamond down there. Oh, there's plenty of them around, but yeah, again, it's it's a summer sport over here. It's not an yeah. all-round sport. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they pride themselves, the little leagues. In fact, you know, I, I coached in the little league over here and there's definitely a fair number of people who take it way, way too seriously. <laughs> As is the case here. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's universal. But then, you know, you get guys who are trying to manipulate the draft of the, you know, of the 10 year olds <laughs> to try and, you know, get a team stacked with, uh, uh with ringers. It's just silliness. It, it yeah. really, we, we could go on and on about that, but, uh, yeah. I don't know. This isn't the uh, the the little league podcast, thank God. No. <laughs> so let's talk some comics. All right. I heard you, or I saw you, got a box full of uh, Marvel and DCs. What's that all about? Yes. Uh, you know, for year I bought CBG for years. You know CBG? No. Comics Buyer's Guide, the magazine. Oh, okay. Yes. Stuff. Yes. I do know. I love that publication. I, I, you know, I shed a tear. Well, I shed a tear when they cut back from like 250 something pages to 50. Uh, but when they went away permanently, I really, I was very distraught, but for years they would always talk about how, if you really want to spread the love of comics and comics reading, one of the things you can do is at Halloween, give out comics. And I said, well, I've always thought that was a neat idea. And this year I said, all right, that gummit, this is the year I'm going to do it. So I went on eBay and I found a lot, because I'm not going to give my comics away. Are you crazy? Mm-hmm. So I found a lot of 50 comics, and it was uh, 17 Marvels, 17 DCs, and 16 Independents. $15, $14.99 for the box. 
and it came yesterday and I was going through it and it is, there's some great, great stuff. here. I'm going to be really happy to give this away to some kids. I'd be, I, I might trade with the, the box and put some of my crap in there and, <laughs> and keep the good stuff if I were you. I know. I kind of made the rule that I'm going to give all of these away. Before it came, I said, I don't care what's in there. I'm going to give them all of them to kids. And as I'm going through it, I'm going, can I not just keep that one? Maybe just that one. I'm going to no, give away give the Amazing them. Fantasy 15. I promised I would. <laughs> now, if it had been that extreme, I think I might have made an exception. But what, what would you say is the best book in the lot? Um. That's a good question. It's sitting over there. Sitting, hang on a second. Let me grab it. All right, there we go. Uh, you know, for for an entertaining the kids aspect, there's a lot of X Mini Wolverine type stuff in here. Okay, that's so you get some initial recognition factor out of them. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know that's a start. And there's some pretty good looking Supermans in here, and a bunch of Teen Titans stuff. Early, you know, not early, but '80s Teen Titans, Marv Wolfman Teen Titans. Okay, oh, that's good stuff. So yeah, there's uh, that might be better than they realize when you're giving it to them. I think so, and I think they'll appreciate it, and maybe they'll be back for more. Maybe they'll come back and say, "Well, what about this?" You know, maybe get some tips on how to continue reading these things, where to go next, and I'll be glad to do that. Well, you, it's, you're already doing more to get young people into reading comics than the comics industry is. <laughs> yeah, notice I didn't go get a bunch of current comics to give to them. So. Yeah, really. <laughs> I guess in theory you could have gone to like a quarter bin in a in a store and just picked up a ton that way too. I don't. The, again, we, everything is here, but not a comic shop. So oh, that's we don't, sad. Yeah, we lost our comic shop probably two thousand five, two thousand six. So I don't. I have to go to Books a Million for my new cards, uh, comics, and hope that they're hope that they show up. And then when they do show up, hope that they haven't been mangled by the time I get to them. Oof. Yeah. You've decided to go to a nearby restaurant. You ask the hostess to seat you in a booth. As you sit, you notice an animated conversation among the four seated behind you. They're talking about Star Wars and Doctor Who and something called the Laugh Olympics. These are the people you used to pants in high school. And yet, you cannot help listening. Unable to tear your ears away, you realize you've just been sucked into the Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks, weekly at twotruefreaks.com. A buddy of mine was telling me today, he's like, you should watch Modern Family. They show it every night on USA. I'm like, I thought USA only interrupted the NCIS marathons to show the occasional Law & Order marathon. I mean, that's all they do, right? <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I mean, that's that's where CBS was getting the rep of just being an old person network, though, because, mm -hmm. you know, nobody, well, I guess, I, you know, I guess they do appeal to women, so I, I my whole theory is kind of crashed to the ground on that, but, no, you know, no, my theory is, at least with men, it's, it doesn't seem like they appeal to anybody under 70, so, you know, that's <laughs> not really the demographic you're generally looking for. No, but that's always been their problem. I mean, don't forget, this is the network that was running... Uh... Murder, she wrote, opposite friends. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> though, you know what? They they totally screwed the end of that show up. Murder, she wrote? I, I could have ended or that friends. show. I'm not sure like which crazy. one you mean. No, Murder, she wrote. I, Murder, could, she wrote. I can also tell you the next episode I watch of Murder, she wrote will be my first. <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, what's her name? Angela Lansbury. And she's this little old lady. She writes mysteries. And everywhere she goes, there's a, there's a murder and she solves it. 
Maybe if they just th- tossed her in jail, it would well, that's, clear that's up the whole thing. problem. It ran for 12 years, and I'm thinking at the end of it, what they should figure out is she killed them all, and then she wrote her mystery novels about them and made millions exploiting the murders she committed. <laughs> it seems to work for me. Yeah. But talking with somebody at work today, we were talking about like show finales. And Lost came up and everything. But I, I to this day, I think the uh, ending of Newhart was the most brilliant one. That always comes up. Anytime you talk show finale, it's got to be Newhart. It's got to be. What is what is funny is uh, Ron on Dinner for Geeks was reading the tabloids when that came out. I remember this because I guess I was in late high school. And oh, you kill me with that. Don't stop <laughs> Stop it right now. <laughs> and, uh, is it that long ago? Seriously? Yeah, it was late 80s. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> and he uh, he'd gotten the Inquirer, and they'd supposedly gotten the scoop on the last episode of Newhart. And they uh, and he so he's like bragging that he knows everything that's going to happen. And you know, he was exactly right all the way up until Newhart gets hit in the head with a golf ball. Mm-hmm. And what? And did he, how did he have it as ending? They had him. He got killed. He goes to heaven. He gets in an argument with God. You know. I have no doubt that they either wrote that or shot it just to throw people off the trail. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that for a second. They, but, they, yeah. They they put that out there just to make people think that they knew the ending. Yeah, and they kept that thing so well under wraps. And I, when I saw it, I was like, great. And this ending sounds... Because I thought the ending was just stupid as he was describing it, you know? So they thought, did, didn't yeah. they do that on Curb Your Enthusiasm? What's that? Didn't they have a season where, where like, the, at one point he, he died and then he went up to heaven and he got into an argument and they sent him back to his body? I don't know. You know, I gave up on that show after about the fourth season, so I don't... I, we we, uh, we went in and out of HBO at that point, so I don't know. Uh, we, I The only thing I did go back and watch was the Seinfeld reunion stuff because I thought that was brilliant. That, that was well done, yes. I was stunned. I, I told a buddy of mine, I said, you know, they could... They could turn around and do another season of that show right now. And I don't think I'd complain. I, that would be my initial thought, but you never know. Sometimes with these shows, it's like, you can't go home again. And then they, <laughs> they, they try and do like a greatest hits kind of thing. And it just yeah. doesn't work at all. I, I remember, yeah. you know, I mean, I love the old honeymooners episodes, but I remember in the seventies when they did a couple of reunion shows and it was just kind of sad. <laughs> no, you're right about that. But I just, that, the script and the storyline and everything they did for that and everything they shot for that reunion episode on curb, I thought was just, I thought it was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really didn't. It played really, really well. Yeah. And I, th- I think part of the reason was that they didn't feel the pressure of like a re- of a real reunion. That's true. The expectations weren't there and the network tinkering wasn't there. And that probably helped too. Yeah. It, it, it was really, really well done. Now you watch, uh, you watch Breaking Bad? I am halfway through the pilot. <laughs> oh, really? I don't. I mean, you know, you know. I told you the other day, or I, I chatted with you the other day, that you know, I get up at three thirty in the morning. I've I've been going pretty much straight through, and when we're done with this, I'll go to bed and I'll get up at three thirty tomorrow. I'll run straight through my work day. I'll host trivia night. After trivia night, I'll record dinner for geeks, and you know, about eleven o'clock, I'll get to bed. And then Friday, I'll run through work all day, and then I'll go broadcast a football game at the stadium. And eleven o'clock, I'll get home, go to bed. <laughs> so, you know, have you ever seen your kids? Yeah, and I I got my son sitting right next to me working on a project on the other one. So that's yeah, I catch them in passing, and 
you know, when football games are on, he won't, I'm, he's always in here, so I can see him then. Well, that works out then, I guess. <laughs> I think my schedule is crazy, but it's nothing compared to that. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Ever since I took that morning show, which you know I wanted, honestly, you know everybody kind of knew it. I'd put my, t- I painted my target on it, or I sprayed it, or whatever you want to say. Um, once I got it, though, boy, it's it has really just been balls out on a constant basis. Yeah, well, I I used to. I mean, we're talking a long time ago, like in the mid '80s. I had a job that you had to be physically within the office at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. And so I would get up at 4.30, leave the house by 5, and, and be at work at 6. And your body never adjusts to that schedule. No. Well, I, before this, I did morning radio for 13 years, and your body doesn't adjust, but I actually like, if I can actually get out at a decent hour, it's not a bad gig. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not going to go to bed any sooner than I'd go to bed anyway, just because... You know, I'm kind of wired to go to bed at, you know, 11, whatever. Um, but then when, if you get out at a decent hour, if you go in at five and you get out at two, then you've got a day, you know, you can go do things. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you have the energy level. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, yeah, when I had that job though, it was also, you know, I, I, at the time I was working on wall street and, uh, it was, it was when the market was going crazy. So most. Almost every day there was overtime to be worked. So a lot of times I'd get in, in into work at 6 a.m. and out of work around 7.30 p.m. And then, and then back the next day, and then they'd push us to work on the weekends. And, I mean, uh, it was crazy. Uh, but I was, nice. you know, I was a young man in my early 20s, so it didn't matter back then. Well, what were you doing on Wall Street? I did uh, – I worked for Solomon Brothers, and I was ah. in the stock clearance area. So what, what would happen is uh, – on a given day, a certain number of trades were made, and the next day it would come to our department, and we'd have to ch- make sure that everything lined up and that it all balanced out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't, it's been so long since I did it that I, the, the finer details are lost beyond that. But, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it, you know, like I said, you know, they, they would have a, a, just a boom day, and the volume that would come to our desk the next day would just be insane. Ugh, man. And and you had to finish the day's receipts before you went home, because the next day you know you started from scratch again. Wow! So it, it really, like I said, it really would go crazy sometimes. Oh, I bet grief. But right. eventually, I, I realized I was wasn't going to make a career out of that, and I went on to to other things. I don't want to say bigger and better, but let's just say other. <laughs> For Guy Gardner Podcast. I got a fast connection so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. 
I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneoftheguys.libs.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Just one of the guys. Just one of the guys does not officially certify that this podcast is more enjoyable than pornography. I wound up hanging out with all the film school guys, so I got a lot of them out there. Uh, I got one who's he's made one film. He wrote and directed a film. It had Joey Pants in it, which was kind of neat. All right, that's that's fairly high exposure. Yeah, had Marsha Gay Harden and Joey Pants, and Pants uh, co-produced. So, and Ebert picked it for his film festival, and that was pretty neat. And then I got another one, who's a buddy of mine that I talk to probably every couple of months, and the stuff he's done. <laughs> he gets a movie made every year, but it's it's been uh, uh, Tasmanian Devils, uh, mm. Witch Witch Slayer Gretel. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Red Werewolf Hunter. That's all sci-fi so, originals. Yeah, it's, it sounds like something you keep doing until you finally do one that catches the right people's eye. Yeah, exactly. And then that that hopefully leads you to bigger and better things. Yeah, he's not writer. He's not in the guild. He just you know. But for the last eight or nine years, he's got, Sci-Fi Channel's made a movie of his a year, every year, consistently. He's got one coming next month. Uh, you, you know, you, you you do that after a while. One day you're the guy who made Sharknado. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and now you made it to the big time. Yeah. Yeah, his his stuff is, I think, at least somewhat more respectable than Sharknado, but not. I don't know if you get much more respectable than Sharknado. <laughs> did, did you sit and watch that debacle? No, no. It, you know, it, it's hilarious. My boss watched it, and he's like Mister Straight Lace. He's a business guy, you know. He's always in his slacks and his suit and his tie, you know. And he came in one day. Did you catch Sharknado? No, I didn't catch Sharknado. We were watching it. We were following along on Twitter. It was great. <laughs> It really, I mean, as long as you don't even attempt to take it in the slightest bit seriously, it's hilarious. <laughs> it and and clearly they're playing it as if it's not for laughs. Yeah, which, which is, is what makes it funny. The only way to do it. Yeah, the Batman way. Yeah, exactly. You do it as if it's serious. Yeah. Well, that was uh, you know, my my one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time is the Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh, yeah. And to me, the beauty of that is Michael Caine never acts as if he's talking to Muppets. No. Not everything at all. is Everything is delivered as if it's a normal performance with regular people next to him. That's why Groden's so brilliant and Great Muppet Caper. Same thing. Mm-hmm. But you know what's funny is the guy I was telling you about that made Canvas, he, uh, he was one of those guys. He and his buddy, actually his buddy is the guy who's doing the Sci-Fi Channel movies now, but they don't speak anymore. They had a little bit of a falling out, but they were like, they were like, you didn't know if they were lovers or not in college. They were such close friends. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were, you know, they like shared a, a checking account and everything. I mean, it was just crazy. But uh, he was really industrious. And what he would do is, I mean, he would, you know, in a thirst for knowledge, he would write all these people. And he d- he established a relationship writing, you know, letters, if anybody remembers those, with Jerry Jewell, who's the guy who was like the head Muppet writer. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, I had a copy of the Muppet Christmas Carol script before they started shooting because he sent one to Joe and Joe made me a copy. And uh, Joe was doing a study abroad thing in London that summer 
and Jerry Jewell invited him down to the studios and they were shooting. And he said the coolest thing was that he's on the set and they're in the streets and everything. And the rats are doing, you know, the rat chorus is doing a thing. Mm -hmm. And, and Frank Oz comes walking in and Frank Oz is in his business suit. You know, he's got meetings or whatever for the day and he's watching them go through their thing and they're not getting it right. And he said, the coolest thing in the world was to watch Frank Oz get up, start shaking his head, take off his jacket, jump down into the pit and start puppeteering with the rats. Oh, that is, that is very cool. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, he's, you know, one of the masters too. So you watch a guy like that, you know, it's, it's in its own way. It's a, you know, it's a tremendous performance. It's just a little bit different than what you're getting out of Michael Caine, but it's probably (laughs) just, just as takes just as much skill in its own way, you know? Yeah. And to watch, but to, but to get to watch a master, you know, engaging in his craft, practicing his craft like that, it's just, it's very cool. Especially, you know, for people like us and like that, you know, your friend would be where, you know, you're, you're totally, you know, into the whole process of making it and everything, you know, oh, yeah. you, it's not just the final product. It's, it's, you know, the, every step of the way is fascinating in its own way. The only yeah. downside to being so curious about it is everything that you learn <laughs> takes it, makes it just a little bit harder to totally submerge yourself into the movie and, and, you know, and just experience the movie itself. Cause now you start seeing, Oh, they made it this way. They did this. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's when I, when I first took a screenplay class that that next summer, I couldn't watch a movie without going, all right, 10 minutes sequence. All right. 10 minute sequence, 30 minutes act break. You know? Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. And people would sit there, what are you doing? It's just, trust me. It's, this is happening next. This is why this is here. You know, it was just cause I was so in the, in the mood to dissect screenplays that, it was just easy at that point. It was second nature. Yeah, you also start, you know, you 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 fig, you see all the, uh, you know, the uh, what's called tropes. The, yeah, and and then you know the the, the Chekhov's gun. You you know you you know it when yeah. you see it. Oh, there it is. We know in the third act they're gonna you know this is gonna become a big issue. Yeah. So I mean, it it does. Like I said, it makes it a little harder to totally immerse yourself in it. But I find that I'm able to do it anyway. I'm simple minded that way. <laughs> Well, when I've got hours and hours and hours, I'll regale you with the stories of being on the set of Lethal Weapon 3, which was, it was, it was a bizarre experience. That's what I'll say. I I could imagine, you know, back in the day, there were a lot of films made in New York. So I got to be, you know, around seeing them film a number of them, but very rare that I ever saw any actors or actresses of note in the process. Usually it was a bunch of actors walking around. (laughs) So yeah, most recently they were filming that, uh, the one with Al Pacino about, uh, what's his name? The film, uh, not the film, the, what's that? Phil Spector. Oh yeah. Yeah. The HBO movie. They did that over at the Nassau County courthouse, but I never did see Al Pacino. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. We, uh, my, my shining moment on the lethal weapon three was when I got to meet Richard Donner. And the only thing I could say to him was, I love Superman. (laughs) (laughs) I saw them film in uh, Eraser. They uh-huh. fil- they filmed that by the uh, Kings County, the Brooklyn uh, Supreme Courthouse. And it's funny, they had the whole area roped off. And Arnold is standing there. It's like one of the few times where I actually got to see the star of the movie. Mm-hmm. And he's standing there and he's talking to, I don't know if it was the director or, you know, screenwriter or somebody. But he's talking to somebody. And, and, and clearly they're engaged in a, in a pretty animated conversation. And he's smoking a cigar. And there's a whole crowd of people, and they're all yelling, Arnold, Arnold, Arnold. 
And he's actually got like a, a personal assistant who's standing there who he hands the cigar, he waves to the crowd, and then he takes his cigar back and he goes back into the conversation. And people are yelling, <laughs> Arnold, Arnold, Arnold. And he hands the guy the cigar again, waves to the crowd, and takes his cigar back again. And it must have happened about five times in the 20 minutes that I was there. Nice. Well, we were, uh, my job is I take on a cigar from him. Well, sure. Yeah. I, I love the attitude though. It's one of the lethal weapon things that was funny to me is we were there. Have you seen lethal weapon three? I'm assuming I, I've you have seen all of them. You know, they blow up the building at the beginning mm-hmm. and that was the, the city hall in Orlando and they, they built a new one and they were going to demolish the old one. And there was a producer whose son went to Florida state film school when I was there who wrote Joel Silver a letter and said, Hey, we're blowing up a building. Can you use it? And he's, yes, let's do it. And they wrote it into the script. And, uh, so we were the, after it had blown up, then they were doing some pickup shots afterwards. And, you know, we'd been told all along the stars weren't there, which I knew wasn't true because earlier in the day I'd run into Danny Glover and, uh, pissed him off. I didn't piss him off. The guy I was with pissed him off. Um, <laughs> but Mel Gibson comes walking out on the set in all his, you know, five foot eight or whatever he is. And as he's walking by us, one of the guys says, Hey, what are you doing here? You know, and the buildings laying, you know, what's left of the buildings laying around. And he goes, Oh, I'm just like the rest of you guys. I'm here to get a piece of the fucking rubble. It's like, okay. <laughs> what was that for? <laughs> yeah, somebody pissed him off. Yeah. <laughs> what did we do? The, 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 the really bizarre story I heard, and I think it was lethal weapon two, not lethal weapon three. But the bizarre story I heard is that uh, Mel Gibson was very into uh, pranks. Mm-hmm. And Joe Pesci is very into cigars. So what I heard that he did was he took Joe Pesci's box of cigars and would basically rub them all over his body, including places oh, that, that he shouldn't be touching anything, uh, and had pictures taken of him doing this. Uh, and then after Joe Pesci uh, smoked the cigars, he said, oh, here, Joe, here's some pictures. <laughs> Very bizarre story. And, and uh, I, don't know if it's, I don't know if it's reality or if it's apocryphal, but uh, definitely would make you cringe if you smoked those cigars. Yuck. Yuck. Although he is the sexiest man alive, so maybe not. I'm not sure he was to Joe Pesci. <laughs> But you don't know that. No, I don't. I, I've never had any uh, opportunity to speak to Joe Pesci. Not nor have I spoken to Mel Gibson, unlike, unlike no. yourself. Yeah. But <laughs> I was just in the neighborhood. I didn't I didn't say a word. I just was, what the hell's wrong with that guy? <laughs> you like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. I have zero frame of reference for New York up until June. Yeah, what, what, <laughs> got you, what got you into New York in June? Um, what got me into New York in June was my 
my daughter turned 16 five years ago. And, uh, my and this mother- was a sweet 16 gift five years <laughs> later. We, we were finally getting her out of here. No, my, uh, my mother-in-law took her and my wife to New York for the Macy's parade and they stayed for Thanksgiving and they, you know, they were going to eat at Tavern on the Green, but it didn't exist anymore when they got there. And, um, so my son just kind of always was of the belief that he was going to get the same thing when he turned 16 and all of a sudden she didn't seem to think that was the case. So we did what we could to make that happen. <laughs> and I figured, well, if we're helping out with this, I'll, I'm going to go too. So, uh, it was kind of his 16th birthday present. So, you know, if I knew you then, as I know you now, I would have gone out of my way to meet up with you while you were around. Ah, well, it was, uh, we were dragging a 75 year old woman everywhere. So it wasn't, you know, all Believe me, story of my life. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Well, it was funny because when we got there, she said, well, we're going to take cabs everywhere. And I went, the hell I am. They're actually things. not nearly as, you know, like we were talking about yesterday, not nearly as bad as what they try and make it look like on TV and in the movies. No, but it was, I mean, from LaGuardia to the Millennium Hilton where we stayed, it was 54 bucks. I'm not <laughs> even sure where the Millennium Hilton is, but. It's near Wall Street. It's not, it's, it's right. It's literally across the street from the World Trade Center. The Guardia to Wall Street about fifty bucks. That doesn't sound that off. Well, it's it's a lot of money. And I mean, I well, you know what? I mean, I was in Orlando, as you're well aware, not that long ago, from Universal to the Pop Century, it's about fifty dollars. So uh, I'm thinking, you know, it all it's the same all over. I mean, the thing about the cabs in New York, despite, like I said, the reputations they have, they are so closely regulated. And, yeah. and, and if you lose your, your medallion, you're screwed. Yeah. And, and they, and they, the police really crack down on the gypsy cabs. So if you don't have a medallion, there's a good chance, you know, you're going to get arrested if you're trying to, uh, to, to get people to pay you to give them rides places. So, uh, you know, they're, they're basically afraid to rip you off because, you know, most of them at least are because, you know, if, if it turned out you were an undercover guy, they could be totally screwed. I got, yeah, our first cabbie told us basically he was furious because of all the uh, hotels that provide essentially taxi service without having to get a medallion. That was his, he was really mad about that. And the guy that took us back to LaGuardia, this was great because he'd apparently been on the job. I finally turned to him. I was like, how long have you been on the job? He's like, oh, 10 days. He was, he had his GPS in his lap and he kept, <laughs> he kept looking down at it. That's got to fill you with confidence. Oh yeah. That was kind of, what the, what are, we could have, and think if we hadn't been waiting for a cab for about thirty minutes, then we probably would have passed that one by. Mm. But you know, he, he literally had that thing in his lap the entire time, though. But yeah, it was fifty bucks for that cab, and she wanted to ride a cab everywhere. And I thought, a, I'm not paying that kind of money, and b, uh, I don't really want to see New York behind glass. You know, I want. I mean, it's a walking town for the most part, yeah. And I wanted to walk. So what? Yeah. What did you get to see? Oh, God. We went to Times Square a number of times, of course. Uh, Which has been cleaned up dramatically compared to what it was 20 years ago. That's what they say. Yeah. I read uh, Carl Hyacinth's Team Rat, where he talked about that a lot. Um, You hit the Trade Center We hit the Trade Center day one. Yep. We did that. We saw the the pools and we saw the new building being built. We did the NBC tour. We did a bus tour of TV and film locations. Um, We saw Phantom. Which I've got friends who used to live in New York going, why'd you go see that? Go see something new. I was like, because I haven't seen that. I saw Phantom <laughs> 20 years ago, and I thought it was awesome. And I ha- I mean, it's not that I've seen it a second time, 
So we're, yeah. we're going back 20 years, but uh, but I thought it was one of the greatest things I ever saw. Yeah, I was. Well, you know, the thing is, I'm not a I'm not exactly partial to musicals, but when I was in high school, you know, when it came out in '87, I bought the I bought the soundtrack because I just thought there was something cool about it. So, well, the orchestration is phenomenal. Yeah, and so you know, to actually get to see, and I and last year I think Netflix put up that 25th anniversary edition of the show, and I'd watched that and got really hooked on it, and so you know. Uh, my my mother in law insisted we had to go see a show, and my son chose Spider Man. Grudgingly, he didn't want to Yeah, well, the the tickets were. She was supposed to pay for the tickets, and the tickets were like a hundred and ten for the cheapies. And she said, "No, I'm not doing that." <laughs> so, yeah. All right. I had I had a week off from work in July, and I was thinking, okay, you know, let me plan some stuff to do with my kids, and I started looking to try and see about cheapies for that. And, and when I saw those prices, I said, you know, with the reviews I'm hearing, I'm not spending that kind of money to see it. Yeah. If it was like 50 bucks a ticket, I probably would have said, what the heck, let's just go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We paid, we paid about 47 for the Phantom tickets. Yeah. Well, that, to me, that's well worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a great show. And, uh, you know, I, I had a ball doing that. And, you know, then of course, after we got the tickets, then, my mother-in-law found out Tom Hanks was doing the Nora Ephron play next door. And she wanted to cancel the Phantom and do that. I'm like, we've already got the tickets. And then she'd go to Garrison and go, but don't you want to see Tom Hanks? And he was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We went to see a play, you know, sometimes when you, you, you go just for the star name. Yeah. It ends up being a real disappointment. We went to see a show two years ago with, uh, David Hyde Pierce from Frasier. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's was, it was almost like you're forcing yourself to like it because you feel like you're supposed to. Yes, especially if you're and, paid for. It. Yeah, and you spent a lot of money for tickets, so it's like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll force myself to to think I like this thing. And then when you think <laughs> about it afterwards, it's like, yeah, it just wasn't so good. Yeah. You know, if I was going to see him in a play, I should have seen him in Spam a lot. There you go. Instead yeah, of, I was, I was so hoping that was still open, but it was not to be. Yeah, there's that, actually. I had a chance to see that a while back with a big group of guys that were going and wasn't able to make it then, and the chance never arose again, which kind of uh, sucked. There's actually a local theater group here that is putting on a production starting this weekend. Of Spamalot? Yeah. Oh, that'd be cool. I would do yeah. that if I were you, definitely. They do it. They do a pretty good job. I've seen some other things they've done, so we'll see how they do. Uh, I know that the lead. The guy that was playing Arthur died about three weeks ago, so I don't know. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a well. I was I'm doing some. We do. Uh, I got involved with this about about a year and a half, almost two years ago, where we're uh, we do old radio shows live on stage at the theater in downtown, and we record them and we actually go and play them back on one of my stations. So. Uh, and you know we have like a sound effects person on stage slamming doors and dropping rocks and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we take old Lux radio theater scripts. We punch them up a little bit to make them a little more easy to read. And, and, uh, we just do those. And he was in several of those. In fact, we're doing, it's a wonderful life this year. And he was going to be one of the main parts in that. Now we're like, oh, what do we do? So yeah, that's, I can see, I can see where that would be a problem. Yeah. A bit of a hassle. My, uh, my Broadway highlight, you know, and, and I'm, I've never been like a regular Broadway guy, but you know, I've been over the years, I've been to a fan, you know, decent number of things but uh i grew up my my all-time favorite tv show is the odd couple oh oh. 
and I got to see uh, one of one of my best friends got us tickets, and we went to see uh, the Sunshine Boys with uh. Tor- with Tony Randall and Jack Klugman. <laughs> and then afterwards, they 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 came out and they were like shaking hands with people in the audience, and uh, you know Tony Randall was a big big uh, proponent of uh, charities for young up and coming actors and you know creative people. So for twenty dollars, I bought an, an eight by ten uh, photograph of the two of them that they each autographed. Oh wow, that's cool! I love Neil Simon. Period. I love the play the odd couple. So yeah. we actually got uh, my wife got my wife and my mother in law go down to this. There's a dinner theater in Jacksonville that they go to once every couple of months. They get you know season tickets and that kind of thing. And year before last, they got us tickets to see the odd couple down there at that theater my brother my son and i because he's he's he got hooked on the neil simon stuff as well i mean when i when i was a kid i would go to the library mom would take me to the library and that's i would check out neil simon books you know Mm. plays and just sit and read the plays and uh so we went and saw and then we found out barry williams was in the play and who did he play Greg, well, you know he's Greg. Greg. Yeah, I know who he is. Uh, that's That's the funny. I didn't real. I didn't think. You know, I couldn't figure out who he was going to play because I could see him doing either one. Uh, we got there, and he's he's Oscar, which really, when you think about it dramatically, it is Oscar's play. So that made sense. But he was really good. Well, dramatically, it's Oscar's play. But from a humor point of view, Felix probably has more of the uh, the high points. Yeah. But I mean, the really the central character who's you know that really makes the the dramatic story arc is it's it's Oscar, it's really his play above anybody else. Um, so, but yeah, and Barry Williams was really good in that play, and he kind of dressed me down afterwards, which was kind of weird. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna have to hear that now. <laughs> he came out and did a Q and A, and he was getting a scant few questions, so I thought you know. I, I have always wondered exactly because when you think about Sherwood Schwartz, who created you know Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island, and you think mm-hmm. about the plots. I mean, these are hugely popular shows, but you think about the plots of these shows and the internal logic. It's just bizarre, and it had to have come from the brain of a very bizarre individual. And so I, you know, he's running out of questions. So I okay, I'll ask the question. And I said, he's yes. And I said, what, what exactly what kind of guy is Sherwood Schwartz anyway? And he just stops and he goes, what kind of guy is Sherwood Schwartz? I'll tell you what kind of guy Sherwood Schwartz is. When a hospital calls Sherwood Schwartz and says, we need a new wing for a children's center, he gives them a check. That's the kind of guy Sherwood Schwartz is. Oh, okay. <laughs> and you just said, thank you. That's what I was yeah, wondering. Just, just <laughs> <needed to> know. <laughs> That's exactly what I was I was asking. <laughs> that was a little awkward, but it was good. Interesting, interesting yeah. stuff. Grom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Mego action figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. 
And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. Yeah, I always try to shoot for an hour for dinner for geeks, but that's just the nature of what that is, you know? It just needs to be that length. Well, again, like I said, I I, I really enjoy the heck out of listening to it because, well, like I said, I feel like I'm there in the crowd. So it, that's that's the beauty of it. Well, I always say, you know, you you paid me a compliment earlier that is to me the big compliment. I always tell people the mark of a great podcast is that you talk back to it. Yeah, and yes. you know, when when you told me you were talking back to it, I was like, yes, that's that's what I want to hear. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually, I've never heard that from mine. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, I talk about you guys. I haven't, hit, I haven't hit greatness yet. <laughs> no, I, what, believe me, when I was in, uh, when when you guys were in Disney, I was definitely talking back to you. So. Yeah, that that's you know th- those shows scared me a little bit because I was kind of afraid that they might just be a touch too self indulgent. No, they were funny. They were good. But it was, I, you know, for me, if nothing else, it becomes another souvenir of the trip. Yeah, you know, then now I have a, a little, you know, little audio travelogue of what we did for the four days. Well, see, I'm I'm a Disney junkie anyway, so I was acutely interested anyway. But uh, you know, because we're down, I mean, we've got we're we've got DVC memberships down there. You know, the little timeshare thing that they have on property. Mm-hmm. So you know, we go down there. We've been in the last year, we've been six times. So. How, how long of a trip is it for you from home to there? It is three and a half hours. It's closer. You know, you mentioned Atlanta earlier. It's about an hour and a half closer than Atlanta. Three and a half hours would be incredibly doable because the the, oh, yeah. the biggest hassle for me, and the biggest reason why I wouldn't have a uh, at least a once a year trip to Disney is the the amount of money it costs to fly. Oh yeah, no you know, doubt. If if it was just a matter of paying really, you know, for gas with a drive over there, and then you know for a hotel and the tickets, I would definitely figure out at least you know like i said at least once a year i'd be doing it yeah we hit the road about 3 30 in the morning usually when we go and we get there by about seven we check into the hotel sometimes the room's ready sometimes it's not and then we can just go do things so yeah it's uh, it's we have a blast we're going back in december so well i would love to do it again next summer but i don't see where that's going to happen unfortunately that's a shame uh, now now my son is uh he's talking about maybe trying to do and he's got precious little experience in this at this point, other than Shea Stadium and City Field. But uh, he, he <laughs> wants to start going to places and seeing different ballparks. That's a cool little endeavor. That's in, that's neat. Yeah. Well, I thought it wouldn't be too hard from here uh, to take the two of them and go to Boston for a game. Boston, yeah. And he, he, would, he would really like to see Fenway Park and Wrigley Field while they're up because he's afraid that, you know, before you know it, they're going to... Say okay, they're too old. We got to replace them. Yeah, we got to build a place with swimming pools named after a bank. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, I don't, I don't know about Wrigley Field because Chicago is probably just as cost prohibitive as going to Orlando as far as the airfare and everything goes. Yeah. Well, 
I will tell you that we could see City Field from our crappy Holiday Inn when we stayed over that extra night. So, well, I, I've <laughs> been I've been to City Field, you know, many times since they've opened up, and I, yeah. I I love it. I think it's a great park. Well, it looks pretty nice from where we were. It was the nicest thing in our field of view. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, well, that isn't really the nicest area of Queens, to be quite honest. With you. Oh, God. Oh, it's well, terrible. You, you do you do have the old World's Fair there, which is kind of nice. The the park for with yeah with you know if nothing else, you, you get a little bit of history. You got terrace on the park there too, uh, but again, not the nicest area, especially like right outside of where City Field is. Then you have you know some auto chop shops and stuff. Yeah, we weren't quite there. We were about 111th Street, I think, is where we were. Uh, nobody nobody stays inside their homes. They all just kind of stand around outside. <laughs> 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 which which makes you not at all uncomfortable walking past them. Like like we were saying yesterday though, it's it's not it's definitely not what it's portrayed to be on TV. It's uh, no, it's no, you, I... you feel much much safer than what they make it seem like. No, we my son and I were yeah, that sounds inappropriate. We were walking the streets at midnight, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that wasn't we didn't feel bad, particularly in the area around Times Square and you know Forty Second, Forty Fourth Streets, and Sixth Avenue, Seventh Avenue, Fifth Avenue, all that around there. We we didn't have a problem walking that in the middle of the night, just walking around. And I love that you can go to Midtown Comics at midnight and get stuff. <laughs> That's something I've never done. I've been to Midtown Comics, but <laughs> never at midnight. Well, we went, we, it was about 11-something we were there because uh, we had to stay an extra day. And we'd literally brought, you know, we didn't bring luggage because we didn't want to have anything but carry-ons. And so we brought exactly enough clothes to get us through the trip. And all of a sudden we had an extra day. And a bunch of dirty clothes. So we went into Times Square and to buy shirts. And so I went to Midtown Comics and I got this cool uh, Captain America golf shirt. Oh, nice. Yeah. Which I get back to work and I was wearing that. My boss was like, is that Captain America? And his favorite line when he catches me doing something like that is, you're the operations director for the largest media company in Southeast Georgia. <laughs> I understand that, but... So that, means, that means you can't wear Captain America? No, yeah, that's exactly what it means. Well, you know what? The operations manager for Disney might be wearing this. <laughs> <laughs> so get that's over true. it, pal. Exactly. <laughs> okay, wow. Sorry I'm late. Let's see, what do we got here? Wow, this, this is a lot more stuff than last time. All this for a new promo for Trendus Magnus Punches Reality? Okay, whatever. No, 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 I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm ready. Let's just bash through this. I got a plane to catch. It's for this year's Golden Headset Awards. Uh word is my auditory orgasm of a podcast has been nominated for basically everything and because it's me, we all know I'm going to win, so I really can't be late for this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, let's let let's roll it. Let's roll it. Prentice Magnus punches reality. Listen as Magnus discusses comics, movies, and TV shows. Trentus Magnus punches reality. It's like porn for your ears. Trentus Magnus punches reality. It's where awesome and epic go to relax after a long day. Trentus Magnus punches reality. 
after all. A million monkeys at a million typewriters can't be wrong. Trentus Magnus punches reality. Because deep down inside, you know Magnus is right. Trentus Magnus punches reality. The People's Comic Book Podcast. Trentus Magnus punches reality. Because fuck you, that's why. Trentus Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at magnus.libson.com. Okay, great. Are we good? We good? We got everything? All right, great. Thanks a lot. Whatever your name is. Bye. All right, so uh, we're back. And I gave Scott the option of whether he wanted the Marvel, the DC, or the Independent. And while he argued that he should have all three, <laughs> I did convince him to just do the DC. So I'm doing the Marvel today. Okay. And I chose Creatures on the Loose number 30 from July of 1974 which is featuring the man-wolf in his first solo appearance. And the cover price on it is 25 cents. Later this same evening, in a brownstone overlooking the Hudson River, a door opens, releasing a sliver of yellow light and the stumbling form of a young man. Nothing I can do. It's happening again. I'm changing. Changing. And in several seconds, we see before us a man-wolf. On the cover, we have a rooftop scene with a man and a woman who are clearly looking for some loving when they're joined by a raging man-wolf who is standing on a chimney behind them, looking very threatening. And uh, Gil Kane and John Romita drew this cover. I believe it's drawn by Kane and inked by Romita. And they show us how the man-wolf can be drawn to look scary and threatening. And then when you turn the page to the splash page, George Tuska shows you how the man-wolf can be drawn to look kind of (laughs) goofy. Anyway, our story is written by Doug Mensch, and it's drawn by George Tuska. It's inked by Vinnie Coletta, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Les Nesman, I mean uh, L. L. Lesman, and edited by Roy Thomas. The splash page shows us the man-wolf leaping through a shattered window of John Jameson's third-floor apartment with onlookers, well, looking on. And having seen that it's time for a flashback and we join J. Jonah Jameson and his son John talking about how now that he's had the moonstone how, how excuse me now he's had the moonstone that transforms him into the man wolf grafted onto his neck yeah it looks like Ilea yeah exactly why they can't just surgically remove it somehow and get rid of the grafting I don't know but apparently they can't and so knowing that the full moon is coming and that he's going to transform does John lock himself up somewhere? No. No. Does he seek the proper authorities? No. <laughs> he goes to his apartment to relax. Yeah. And when he's there, he transforms and trashes the apartment. While he's doing that, he stops and sees a picture of John's fiance. And according to the narration box, he recognizes the girl for what she is. In other words, I believe that Mr. Mensch is telling us that she is nothing but a soulless hoe. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking the man-wolf is thinking. And so he crashes through the window, which is where we first started our story, and he plummets into a convertible parked below, tears apart the car from within, and that done, he heads off. 
So from there, we cut to the 30th precinct where a plainclothes officer named Simon Stroud is speaking with a lieutenant about a special task force assignment that he has uh, with regard to complaints of a werewolf attack. They mentioned that it seems that JJJ won't admit that the attack took, took place, excuse me, but they recovered a piece of the man-wolf's radiation screening suit and lab analysis has told them that it's the same material that NASA uses for astronauts. And it just happens that JJJ's son is an astronaut. Oh, so, no. of course, these Sherlock Holmes cons- these Sherlock Holmes type people conclude that the only logical conclusion is John Jameson has been attacked by the werewolf. Huh? That's, yeah, of course. Really? Yeah. That's, 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 that's law enforcement, according to Doug Mitch. Well, have you ever seen the two of them together? That's true. No, you got a point. Never saw them in the same room at the same time. It's going to act because he was getting ready to attack him. <laughs> So, what they do is they decide to follow John to see if he can lead them to any clues to find out where the man-wolf is. He stumbled over a clue. Yeah, right. Inspector Clouseau uh, gets a report (laughs) that the werewolf is spotted and basically takes off on his way. He goes to JJJ's office, but Jonah doesn't want to see him. So he bursts in very dramatically and confronts Jonah with the shard of the astronaut's uniform material and Jonah tells him to get lost. Stroud leaves and heads to see John. He sees the damaged convertible and breaks into John's apartment without any type of warrant and sees the trashed apartment. We cut to a couple taking a stroll who are about to get mugged by looks like Frank Stallone and an even goofier looking accomplice. (laughs) And they accost our strolling lovers and the man-wolf pretty much rips the two of them to shreds. Stroud sees what's going on and shoots at the man-wolf, hitting him in the left shoulder. The man-wolf quickly leaps away, and Stroud equally quickly says, Nah, I'm not going to be able to follow him, but follows him anyway. The man-wolf makes his way to the South Street Seaport, at least that's what it looks like, and leaps onto, onto a departing ferry. Stroud tries to follow them, and and goes to the owner of a boat and basically throws him into the water and steals his boat in order to give chase. The man-wolf makes his way to Liberty Island, so that does confirm that we were in, in the South Street area. And he's hanging out on one of Lady Liberty's head spikes, and Stroud shoots at him again, chasing him to, or causing him to leap to the torch. The wolf constru- confronts Stroud and leaps at him. Ultimately, the man-wolf slams through a railing and plunges into the water. And of course, Shroud, once again in a brilliant piece of deductive reasoning concludes that no one could survive a plunge like that <laughs> and the and the writers don't even want to try and waste your time trying to fool you with that because basically they let us know in the next balloon that this is going to be continued in the next issue so we yes. know he survived <laughs> now is is stroud wearing a regulation red tight uh, uh turtleneck t-shirt Oh, they, that's all the New York cops wore that in the seventies. Okay, I was, I that was that was the uniform. Serpico bring that in, or who who started that? It's not even a T-shirt; it's a long sleeve shirt. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's, it covers all of his bulginess. Yeah, it, and you know what? He looks a lot like John Jameson in the way he's drawn. But yeah, but I think George Tuska is an awful artist. I really do. I don't know. I was listening to a show, I couldn't tell you which, recently, where somebody started saying, oh, he's very, very underrated. People don't appreciate what he did. 
That was not Tinder for Geeks, was it? No, no. <laughs> we've never brought... It's funny you mention that because on page three, panel one, I don't know if you've got that handy. Yeah, I do. There is... First off, I got to know who's doing Manwolf's hair. <laughs> Who does he hire for that hair? Yeah, well, that's basically... It looks like it's a werewolf face with a beetle wick. <laughs> I didn't know maybe John Jameson was going bald. It's a comb over what that is. But uh, it to me, that drawing looks like one of those looks like a one of those jerky treat ads that Jack Davis used to draw. <laughs> well, I mean, I said it facetiously, but compare the, the man wolf on the cover to the man wolf within the story. Yes, no question. I mean, it, it's it's ridiculous. He looks great on the cover. Yeah, terrific illustration on the cover. The fear on the people's faces is great. The body language. And then you get that. Then you get George Tuska. Yeah. I, you know, I was trying to think, okay, what can I say positive? You know, I don't, I don't want to just be, you know, blasting it. Because, you know, I, I've often said I love comics from this era. And even this book, it, it was entertaining for me. What can I say positive about the artwork? And what I come back with on that, in, in all honesty, is the storytelling is not bad. It, you can follow what's going on in the story. If you did not read the balloons, you kind of still know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I'll give him credit for that. He had the ability to 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 have a logical sequence of, of panels that will tell you what's going on in the book. But his facial renderings and even a lot of his anatomy is just awful. Yeah, page 26, panel 3, Lady Liberty. That is the THX 1138 version. <laughs> Of Lady Liberty. <laughs> That's the worst Lady Liberty face ever. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm totally prepared to blame a little bit of that on Vinnie Coletta because I think the Inca should have... Uh, he could have cleaned it, it up a little. Yeah. I, I don't draw it, man. Come on. <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of a combination of Lady Liberty and the Sphinx. <laughs> it's a little Sphinxy, isn't it? I, I, oh. I, she, and she's kind of sad. Yeah, <laughs> Got kind of a frown going. She's forlorn. I'm telling you, she's one of the cops from THX 1138. <laughs> that's her with a spiked helmet. And, uh, and th- that's the other thing is like her headband doesn't even fit on her head. It's like it got warped in the sun at some point. <laughs> it doesn't even conform to the shape of her head. It's some totally different creature. Yeah, yeah I, I'm thinking if if George Taylor walked up to this at the end of Planet of the Apes, he wouldn't even care. <laughs> That's all? Okay, never mind. <laughs> you know what? Good good thing you brought yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you went and did it. <laughs> I, I'm, you know, the next page is, I, I think, it, again, going to just lay out. I think it's kind of a, dy- a dynamic shot of him leaping from the head to the torch. So I'll give him credit for that. I like the I, angle of it. I like the perspective. I would give you credit for that. I would give him credit for that if you could really tell where he was leaping from and to. But it's, no, it's, he kind of looks like he's falling. That's but he's that's actually jumping neg- up. Yeah, maybe maybe you need some motion lines showing him going up. I don't know. Yeah, but but it, I mean, to me, it's it's I can tell he's leaping from the middle spike, and he's leaping for that uh, the the railing around the torch. I mean, I, I think that's kind of clear. There's a boat in the at the top of the picture that looks kind of like a carrot, though. Interesting, because in my book today, we will also examine the unnecessary use of orange. So. <laughs> uh, that's a hint for anybody who's trying to figure out which book you picked. 
But I mean, overall, not a bad story. Not especially compelling. Uh, I go back to the fact that this was a 25 cent book, and it's you know, if you read this for 25 cents, when you know back in 1974, you'd say, all right, you know, it's not the same as reading a book for 3.99 now. No, no, you actually get a full story. Yeah. Back then, back then you'd you'd pay a quarter and you'd get a story. Now you pay four dollars and get one fifth of the story. So, and and one of the things about this that that I found to be interesting uh, for the time is the fact that when those two strange-looking muggers are, uh, are are attacking the couple, I don't think there's much doubt that he kills them. Yeah. No, I think you're right about that. I mean, they never come out and say it, but just from the shot of, you know, you, you see the, the, the couple in the foreground and in the background you just see in, in silhouette, him looks like he's ripping a shirt apart, but I'm thinking he's ripping somebody limb from limb. I think Frank Stallone got killed and the other guy got away or else he, he became very tiny and ran down Man-Thing's back. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, because he's also shown in silhouette there. Yeah, it might just be Frank Stallone because it looks like the uh, garment is green. Yeah, I think it is Frank Stallone. And and the other guy, I mean, I I would think of the other guy as Lenny from Of Mice and Men, personally. (laughs) With a headband. Of course. It's the 70s. He's a big Bjorn Borg fan. (laughs) Back then, uh, often when they would try and show Street Toughs, you'd have the uh, guy with the vest and no shirt underneath it. Yeah. That, would, that would be the way of showing that somebody's really tough. Yeah. Well, of course, he could put up with the chafing of a vest with no shirt to buffer it. And Frank Stallone's got quite the uh, quite the knife in his hand. Yeah, he does. Yeah, it's a, that's almost a, it's almost like an Arabian swordsman type thing. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, it doesn't look like a switchblade. But we're not going to get into weaponry on this because we really, because Stroud's, I don't know what that is Stroud's shooting in this book. Yeah, well, it's, it, it looks like a ray gun of some sort. It's Yeah, it's it's almost a Mauser, but it's almost not quite. And what the hell's a New York cop doing running around with a Mauser? And, uh, yeah, I don't know what that is. I'd love to see a gun aficionado come up here and explain exactly what that is. He's also got, if you notice, he's driving like a vet. They mm-hmm. did depict the vet, vet very well, but there's an interior shot on 17 of the of the car, and it's got like a TV screen in it. I was thinking it was a, a an early GPS. Yeah, maybe it is. That's I, I was just noticing exactly that as you were saying it. I'm just trying to figure out what they what it homes in on. I mean, if it were Gilligan's Island, it would obviously be homing in on coconuts, but <laughs> I can't figure out what it's what it's homing in on here. Now, had had you ever been exposed to any of these issues before? This this issue I had never I had never read before. Uh, I've got some of these. I mean, here's again. What you don't know about me is I'm an anal completist. And once I get started on something, I kind of have to get it all. And I literally in my office downstairs. I'm just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but a comic comic book fan who's an anal completist. No, yeah, no. It doesn't really make you unique, my friend. (laughs) It does, it does in that I kind of go a little more overboard than I should. I have every single Marvel essential except for Conan. You know, those big phone book, mm-hmm. Marvel books. Yep. There's like 175, 180 of them. I have them all in my office downstairs. And to go along with those, I have all the DC Showcase presents. So, <laughs> yeah, Pretty cool, actually. And, 
Yeah, that well, that was just a I matter of. I don't hear that and think, "Oh, what a nut!" I hear that and think, "Ooh, I'm jealous." <laughs> well, then, see, two bookshelves over in my office. There's this shelf where I have every single Star Wars novel in chronological order, in the order they happen. <laughs> There's a couple of hundred of those. So. And then there are the hardcover Star Wars, and then the same one in paperback, and then the same one on CD. So yeah, it gets <laughs> it gets a little rough. Yeah, but again, I, I don't think you're unique. <laughs> you may be unique as to the exact composition of your collection. Yeah, but I think we all have our. I think we. I think every one of us has something in their collection where people would look at it and say, "Really, you went and got that?" Okay, for me, would it be every single V novel, or every single Battlestar Galactica novel? I'm thinking the V novels would be a little <laughs> bit more off the beaten path. Well, now, I have how, a book. But I, I'm guessing a lot of those Battlestar novels were written before the reboot. Uh, yeah, almost most of them. I don't think there were but four or five reboot and beyond ones, but there were like there was an original series of like 12 of them, and then Richard Hatch co-authored four or five or maybe six of them, and yeah, I've got all of that. So No, they did 13, I think, and then... Maybe fifteen, and then Richard Hatches. I'm trying to remember now, I got them all downstairs. In addition to every Doctor Who tar- Target novel as well, and there's like 190 something of those. So <laughs> now Doctor Who, as I've sp- yeah, I've heard about this. on the show, I've I'm, I've never gotten into. Last week, my daughter stayed home sick from school one day, mm-hmm. and when I came home, all of a sudden I found she's a Doctor Who fan now. She found Doctor Who on Netflix and started watching it just out of the clear blue sky, no influence from me whatsoever. Well, obviously, because you don't like it. Not that I don't like it, I just never got into it. It's not it's ah. not that I dislike it. It's just I've never become you know, I've never had a chance to become an active fan of it. Gotcha. But, but I was I was just impressed that, you know, I guess I passed on the geek gene because <laughs> she got into it just on her own. For some reason that's a really easy gene to pass on. But it's you know, I think you, you, you know, all of us who are parents know that you desperately want to pass it on. <laughs> so when, when you do see that it was, yeah. that, it, that it was picked up by your kids, it, it, you feel a certain sense of probably totally unwarranted pride. You're, yeah. The, yesterday was superhero day at my son's school and he didn't have to, they wanted people to come dressed as superheroes and all he did was reach into his closet and grab one of his many flash shirts and put it on and go to school. There you go. Good deal. <laughs> Uh, you got anything else on this book? No, I, I think I've exhausted this book. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> kind of exhausted me now. <laughs> so maybe it's time to move on to our DC. Okay. DC. And how I chose my book, I will tell you that, uh, you know, I've told you everybody's here. Everything happens here. Um, including, by the way, you know, I mentioned Jack Davis earlier. You know who Jack Davis is. Not off the top of my head. Mad Magazine. Uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world movie poster. He's okay. Done... Oh, yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And that happens to be one of my favorite movies ever, by the way. He lives here. <laughs> in your house? Yeah. Next door. No, he lives over on St. Simons. In this... He lives in the same county. Okay. Good enough. Close so, enough. Yeah. And uh, anyway, also living here is a buddy of mine, Jack McDevitt, who is a Nebula Award winning science fiction author. And uh, Jack is... really does happen there. I'm telling you, it's amazing. But uh, Jack is he's pushing, he's about 77, 78 years old now, and he loves Batman. And one day he gave me a box. He said, here, I was cleaning out the house. Here, here's a box of comics. 
And I went, holy cow, okay. And I haven't had a chance to go through them, but I know he loves Batman. So I said, you know what? When you offer me the chance to do this, I said, well, I'm going to randomly pick a comic out of that box of comics that Jack McDevitt gave me and, uh, and choose that. And I said, that's why I picked DC, because I knew there'd be a bunch of DC in there. So I grabbed the box and I start pulling out books and Punisher, 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 Punisher. <laughs> and finally I get to a Batman. So Batman 451 is mine. Okay. Judgments, or as I call it, how the Joker got his groove back. It is written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by Jim Aparo, inked by Mike DiCarlo. The letterer is John Costanza, which is a parallel to your issue. Yes, John was getting around. Colorist is Adrian Roy, the associate editor. This is the most important piece of the whole thing. Dan Raspler. And the editor is the legendary Denny O'Neill. Which makes me think that Dan Raspler did all the editing and Denny O'Neill just wanted his name on the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in case you were wondering, the last credit is Batman created by Bob Kane, but absolutely not at all by Bill Finger. Yeah. So, can make sure they point that out to everybody. Bill Finger book, had nothing to do with it. Nothing. Nothing at all. It's all Bob Kane. It says so right here. Even, even though, I mean, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to just show a little restraint and we're going to just, I'm going to let you do your, your, your synopsis because we could go off on a, t- a tangent there that, that'll never end. Okay. Oh, you're, you're showing the restraint now? Okay, I thought you were showing a little restraint. I thought you, had a, you were going to riff. Um, all right, I'm going to, this is going to be a quick and dirty synopsis. The book opens on three different scenes sharing the mental state of Commissioner Gordon, Batman, and the Joker. They've all suffered varying degrees of trauma. Gordon dealing with Barbara's recent paralysis. Joker's dealing with having uh, been shot and uh, you know had the hell beat out of him in the uh, death of the family storyline. And now somebody's running around pretending to be him. And Batman, even though he's already got a new Robin, he's already moved on. Despite the requisite mourning period, he's still upset about losing Jason Todd. Even though his phone records show that he called the 800 number to kill him over 50 times. <laughs> We then, yes, we then cut to the magnificent Halloween-colored crime lair. Uh, and by the way, it's just a bunch of skyscrapers in Gotham City, and they're all the they're all completely black with bright orange lights. Every one of them. I do not know every throughout this book, every skyscraper in Gotham City is pitch black except for bright orange lights in the windows. They look like crossword puzzles. It, yeah, they they look like Halloween-inspired crossword puzzles. But we cut to the magnificent orange-lit crime layer of Curtis. Curtis who? I don't know. This issue, by the way, is not a jumping-on point for anybody. <laughs> they really never go around exactly telling you who is who, and there's no, you know, you just you pick up a little bit, but you never pick up everything. Curtis is the guy who's been running around pretending to be a Joker, which is great because he's got a rubber Joker mask, and when he puts it on, everybody thinks he's the Joker. Which is, when that happened on the Batman, the 66 Batman series, that is what's told me this is exactly on TV, this is exactly what happens in the comics. Somebody will put on a rubber mask of somebody, and everybody will just assume it's them. I would like you to try that in real life at some point. Yeah. No, I, I have I have many rubber masks that look just like different people when yeah. I you know when I don't want to be bothered. But did you ever see that when it, 
one of the episodes of the TV show. Was it full, full Space, wasn't it? Uh, no, what I'm remembering is, I forget who it was, but a, a, a woman, they abducted Robin and replaced him with a woman in a Robin mask. Yes. And then they just had Burt Ward play the woman in the Robin mask. Was it? I'm, I'm now all of a sudden, I'm just putting them all together. Was it? Uh, what, didn't they have uh, a, a 60s uh, singer with Robin? Mm. Uh, she was like a, a hench person to, the, to Catwoman. Uh, that might be. Who's the one who sang uh, "Don't Sleep in the Subway"? Uh, uh, it's my party. Lula? I cry if I want it. No. Uh, I don't remember now. Yeah, I figure you know I got a radio guy on here. He'll know. <laughs> I'm a talk radio guy. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't know all my songs. Was it uh, Leslie? Uh, Leslie Gore Leslie or Gore. somebody? That's it. Okay. That's who it. Is. Thank you. See, you, you've renewed my faith in you. Okay. Well, see, and that's you know when. You say you're yelling at dinner for geeks. So somebody was yelling at us right then. Yes, I'm sure. Picked okay. it up. And so that means we're a success. Yes, yes. Uh, anyway, he is, he's been running around pretending to be Joker, and he's basically showing everybody how good he is being, at being the Joker. So he psychotically roughs up one of his goons just to prove it. Shoves him out a window, orange-colored. Shows him a bunch of other, other orange-colored windows that are down there. The disgruntled, humiliated henchman, who's even more so because he's sporting a bowl cut retreats to that bar that all the goons hang out in. And of course, if you want to get away from somebody that you go to the bar where all the goons are going to be. And of course, who shows up? Batman shows up. And yeah. And eventually the Joker shows up looking for him too. They're both looking for the fake Joker, this guy. And by the way, his name is Bobby. So, so far in the wonderful superheroic world of Batman comics, our two bad guys are named Curtis and Bobby. <laughs> you know, I guess they'd already recently used Monitor, Anti-Monitor, Captain Cold. You know, all the cool names were gone. We've got Curtis and Bobby. Well, they are a superstitious and cowardly lot. <laughs> Bobby squeals. Bobby sings like a soprano at the Met. Batman goes and tells Gordon everything that Bobby told him. And they all go and get lured into a trap. Where do they get lured into a trap? At the Ace Chemical Processing Company where the Joker was born or conceived or whatever. The fake Joker has arranged to have them there so he can take them all out at once. They did not, however, count on the real Joker suddenly growing a pair and getting his inner crazy back and his outer crazy back. He attacks the fake Joker, more commonly known by the sinister name of Curtis. Curtis is starting to believe the hype. He really is the Joker. He wants to prove it to everybody, so he jumps into a vat of something, just assumes it's the same stuff the Joker fell into because they're in the same place, but it's a highly concentrated version of the same stuff that made the Joker, and so it eats him alive. They take the Joker back, but now the Joker realizes he is back, baby. And that's the story. I think that's a pretty good synopsis of a story that was really almost incomprehensible. <laughs> well, that first off, it felt like an epilogue rather than a story. It, it felt like something had happened for many issues before, and oh, by the way, we're just going to kind of wrap up a few loose ends here. I, I throughout it, I had a feeling, I had the feeling that it was kind of an epilogue to the Killing Joke. Mm, well, it does it does climax at the Ace Chemical Processing Company. And it directly refers to the Killing Joke when it, with Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. And and with the Joker, for that matter. 
Yeah. So I, I like I said, I, I kind of had the feeling that it was an epilogue to that. That Marv Wolfman decided he wanted to put his his stamp on the Killing Joke somehow. Yeah, but I, that's what kills me about this issue. Period. As far as this story, and as you say, it is it is. You know, there's almost no exposition. You almost cannot tell what's happening unless you've read every issue leading up to it. Um, but the, if you look at the pedigree on this issue, I mean, it's Marv Wolfman, Denny O'Neill, Jim Aparo. This should be a home run issue. Yeah, you would it's, think. It's, it's, even, it's even got Costanza. It's even got Costanza. So what happened? It's. I think it's a, it's a fairly well-drawn issue. Well, here's my issue with the art. I think Aparo, I mean, he's great anyway, but the background kept grabbing me and, and the background kept saying Archie to me. <laughs> and, and then I started thinking, well, Mike DiCarlo, maybe he's related to Dan DiCarlo. And I looked it up. He's not related to Dan DiCarlo, but the background just kept looking cartoony. There, there's, a, there's a scene where Gordon is sitting in his home I've got to find this now because i got to get the page for this because it's just, you'll see what I'm talking about. I just, I didn't have my pages marked on this. Gordon's smoking a cigarette there, which I wonder if they would let him do nowadays. Probably not. They'll let them kill people now, but you can't smoke a cigarette. Oh, yeah, of course. Killing people is totally different. I think that the smoke, the sitting at home is just in the very beginning, the second page of the story. I thought so, but for some reason I now can't find it. Is it the second page? Yeah, oh, it is. It's the first panel on the second page. With, with the, uh, what looks like paneling behind him and the bookcase? <laughs> looks like paneling. But you can't, yeah, you can't really tell what angle it is. What are the, what is the geometry of that apartment? I mean, look where the bookcase is, the angle it's at. Then the, the, the wall kind of goes up and makes a jagged angle. I, I didn't know what the floor was for a while. Then he's got this table that apparently he spends all of his time off buffing. <laughs> glowing next to him <laughs> yeah no the uh now that you say it the, the whole perspective on the uh room is kind of just it looks like it's just kind of thrown in there and i think if you look at one of the books is a recipe book for pop tate's chocolate shop really i, I couldn't see no, that I, close no, I okay i couldn't see, i can't see what any of them actually are no i'm, uh, I'm holding on, yeah. now I'm, i mean i'm looking at, at the paneling and I'm putting that on Mike DiCarlo for, like you said, just, just I'm thinking that Jim Aparo didn't actually put those lines in there. No. But but if if you look at the above the books, the it looks like there's a door on the bookcase, and it's yep. got these swirling wood. I, I'm trying to think, you know, the the wood lines yeah. that I think are pretty good, actually. Yeah, Mike DiCarlo apparently just had a thing for this panel. Yeah, I mean, he, he clearly spent a lot of time working on it. <laughs> yes, he did. Now the wood grain looks good, but... The, the grain, I couldn't remember the word. That's, yeah. I had a senior moment there. <laughs> but the panel, it's just bizarre. It's just a bizarre, bizarre... Ba- and that's... The, the big beef I have with the art is those... The background stuff. And which, which back- again, I, I don't weird. think you could put that on a paro. And, and, no. and the coloring in the uh the halloween candy buildings uh you know i mean that that you can't put on a power either nope he wouldn't have done that but that <clears throat> it does look ridiculous the lighting and i think it's the coloring the coloring and the inking if you look at page 12 and you go to panel one i'm telling you that criminal is not anybody other than the beyonder from secret wars 2 
twelve. The twelve, yeah. Okay, yeah, he doesn't have enough jerry curl going. Doesn't quite have the jerry curl going, but yeah. The I outfit, like it, the red in, jacket. Uh, on page seven, the first panel where it shows the exterior of the bar, I like the use of, uh, I think it's Zipatone that, that he used. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, sure it, it gives it that grainy look. Yep. I, sure I, 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 and even the, the you know, off-kilter angle and everything. I mean, I, I do like some of the things about the art. I like that the uh, the you know the thug there has got a big chain around himself so that he could use it to fight. I yeah. do not like the very last panel where Batman is mule kicking him, but you can't even see his leg. Yeah. <laughs> I also find it odd that the guy looks like he's smiling as Batman mule kicks him in the gut. Yeah. Or the solar plexus, as the case may be. Yeah, I. I had liked the shots of the bar. They're atmospheric. There's there's always smoke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everywhere you turn in that bar, there is smoke everywhere. Uh, and I really like a lot of the city scenes. If you look through there and you see, you know, when they're not showing giant, you know, black and orange skyscrapers, some of the city stuff is really kind of neat looking. Yeah. It's, I mean, overall, I think Aparo did a good job. I agree. I, I think the finishing work on it leaves something to be desired. Yeah, and I think DiCarlo does a lot of cartoony books, you know, Hanna-Barbera stuff like that. And I think that's, I think that style is what's coming through here more than it should. And this has got to be about the beginning of the end for Aparo, when he really started to, you know, not not be up to the level that he had earlier in his career. Mm-hmm. But he seems like. This might be just shortly before he kind of lost it a little. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's interesting because on page two, you've got Commissioner Gordon looking at that photo of Barbara. And then they cut to a flashback of him. And I'm not sure what he and the Joker were doing and if that was consensual at all. Oh, that that's from the killing joke. Yeah, but I, I know. But the way they drew it, he's got he's got the spiked necklace, yeah. <laughs> spiked collar, dog collar on. But that's the... that's pretty accurate to what <laughs> happened in the Killing Joke. If you've yeah. read that, that's true. Uh, that's true. You know, he he basically. Yeah, I mean it's it's down to the point. And again, the perspective is a little off on it. But he even, uh, you know, to the point where he had the photos of Barbara, mm. which are even shown in that flashback panel. Yep. Yep. That's... But overall, overall, the, the, I don't know what Marv Wolfman was thinking. That's that's my biggest beef with this issue. Is I, I don't know where Marv Wolfman's head was. Yeah, no, I, I, I would give the problems in this issue to Wolfman. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I could get over the finishing work that we're pointing out some of the nitpicks with. Yeah. And I, and I think the overall general art is pretty decent. But the, uh, the story is, uh, like I said, I thought you did a, a really good job of synopsizing it because it's almost incomprehensible as you're reading it. No, I had to read it twice to figure out some of what was going on. And, I, and I'm still sitting back going, is that actually what happened? So, And an interesting point, totally, not totally unrelated, but somewhat unrelated to what we're talking about, though, is uh, if you ever listen to Fat Man on Batman, Kevin mm-hmm. Smith's show, I recently heard one where he was doing an interview with Grant Morrison, and Morrison said that in his reading of the killing joke, at the very, very end, Batman kills the Joker. Yeah, I I think I saw you posting about that. I didn't. I've heard several episodes of that show. I didn't hear that one, but uh, that was never my read on that. It wasn't mine either. But when he said that, I went back and I looked at it, and I I could see how you could conclude that. 
Mm-hmm. That, you know, and, and what Morrison said was something to the effect of, you know, Alan Moore knew that, the, you know, the Joker isn't going to be dead. But in his story, that's where it ends. Interesting. Which, I, yeah, I found it to be really interesting. I'm not the biggest Alan Moore fan in the world. Just because <laughs> his stories are great, but I find him to be so pretentious that he bothers me. Yeah, well, I, I, that's that's a whole other episode of Back to the Bits. Yeah, much much like the Bill Finger episode that we could do one. Yeah. <laughs> I could rip on Alan Moore for a while, but I'm I'll, I will do as you did and exercise the restraint. But I think he's a brilliant guy. Yeah. Oh no, it's, but, it's not that his stories aren't great. It's just his attitude that gets to me more than anything yeah. else. And and Absolutely. like I said, there's this points where he he disrespects his audience. And, and that bothers me. Yep, yep. Uh, I see. We've got to do another episode sometime. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but I think, uh, unless you have anything else on this one, maybe we'll we'll, no. we'll call we'll call a conclusion to this episode, having kept you on here for over an hour and a half. No. <laughs> sorry about that. I no, don't be sorry at all. Are you kidding me? You, you're the one who has to get up at three thirty. Did you say three thirty? I I myself I myself get to sleep until glorious. The glorious hour of 5.30. Ha! You're a piker! <laughs> oh. and, and that's only because i got to get my kids up for school. Other, I, otherwise, what? I could probably sleep until about 8 if I wanted. I get up most days before I even go to bed. <laughs> Every night. <laughs> Every night. My, my father would cut me in half with a bread knife and dance <laughs> hallelujah on our graves. <laughs> you tell kids that today and they won't believe you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.